Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. So glad you tuned in for this one. This is episode 33-0 on our way to the big 5-0, and it's uh, very exciting. Today, we have Jess Wilkinson. She is from Conestoga College in Kitchener, Ontario. We go through a ton of stuff here. Again, we run out of time. I, I might have to think about extending the time or just booking our, our guests for you know at least two episodes. I don't know. They just bring it, and it's so good to sit down and talk with them. You're going to love this one. We, we chat a lot about a lot of things, and uh, I think you're going to find some value, if not some, a lot of value in what uh, Jess has to offer to us today to uh, think about what we're doing when we're doing our digital pedagogy and, and transitioning from the written word into the digital word and everything in between. So sit back, relax. It is the summertime. Enjoy your favorite beverage while you're listening to your favorite podcast of all time on pedagogy. And uh, if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe. You can find us on all your your pedagogy podcast (laughs) platforms. That's right. They're all out there. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast. We're there. Pick us up. Listen to us. It's all great. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the other side. Take care. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 30. I am more than halfway to my goal of 50 episodes, and then we'll just keep going after that. So I know. Yay. Yay. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. This is awesome. Um, So we have a very special guest with us this uh, this episode. This is Jess Wilkinson. Hi, Jess. How you doing? Hi. Hi, everyone. And... um, Jess, why don't you take a few minutes to introduce yourself to us, tell you where, you, where you're from and kind of what you're doing. So my name is Jess Wilkinson and I'm out in Ontario. I'm a faculty developer at one of the local colleges. Um, and my area of specialization is in technology and pedagogy. So how do we find that, inter- that sweet spot intersection where the tech meets, meets and serves the learning? Um, but I actually started out as a K-12 educator. So I spent about 10, 12 years, um, both internationally and locally in our public school boards, just teaching. Uh, I taught a lot with special education. I worked with assistive tech. I taught for a while or trained for a while with, with the big duo, Microsoft and Google. Um, but adult education was always kind of the sweet spot for me. For me and so I kind of landed off in the in the higher education industry um, and found myself in in faculty development and it's what I love to do so that, that's very cool so yeah. not too many, not too often we find somebody from the k-12 to who transitions to higher ed right I know yeah I feel a little bit alone sometimes <laughs> <laughs> but it's good though because I mean you, people are you, like where are these ideas coming from this yeah, girl <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. and and being you know in the K-12 for you know a decade um mm-hmm. it's not like you just dabbled your toes into it and then jumped into higher ed like you bring quite a a band of experience with you in, into what you're doing yeah, well, I mean, the focus of, of my own development into the K-12 experience was really, um, you know, I kind of started out in that, in that younger age group, and those experiences are really rich. 
right? You, you really see that growth and that progress over time in those learners. And when I came back into Ontario and, and I was engaging in the classrooms here, I was really happy with that experience, but there was something that um, I was really appealed by sort of the equitable dynamic that you get when you're in a community of your peers and you're guiding them through a learning experience. And so that's something that adult education really held for me. You know, I, I could do the K to 12 experience. I was happy in that environment. But what I really wanted was an experience where learning was about sharing among your peers. And I found that I get that a lot more in adult education. And I can, I can foster that and find that there. So it was a, an interesting career switch. It was definitely, I was like, am I brave or stupid right now? I'm not sure. <laughs> we'll <laughs> go with brave. I think brave. it's worked out. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with brave. We'll go yeah. with brave. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. No great things were done in stupidity. Let's just put it that way. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> oh, sometimes. Well, you know, no, okay. Maybe, maybe stumbled into, but uh, yeah, anyway, maybe. good. Faculty development with technology and learning. That's, um, that has been a topic on my heart for a long time. Not so much the, mm-hmm. not so much the tech and learning piece, but faculty development has been a huge um, weight on my shoulder. And uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But let's talk about your international experience. Where did you go? Um, so I taught for one year in Mongolia. So I landed off in Ulaanbaatar. What? <clears throat> yeah. What? <laughs> My first experience teaching internationally was in Mongolia. Oh, oh mercy. It's like, you know, oh, I went to France or I went to England. No, no Mongolia. Yeah. yeah. Brave or stupid again, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what, what drew you to Mongolia? Um, so my partner and I at the time were, uh, graduating pretty fresh out of university and we just knew we wanted to kind of travel and teach for a little bit. And, um, you know, we were on one of those ESL boards, like Gates ESL Cafe or something like that. And there was this job posting for, for Mongolia and weird enough, they were looking for two teachers, one in history and the other in ESL. And that happened to be our two skill areas. Um, and, and we just looked at it and we kind of thought like, well, well, why not? Well, why, you know, why not? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I think we applied for the job. Um, and we kind of like looked into Mongolia and we were like, yeah, looks like a place that we could try out. Um, my partner was really into Russian history as well. So it being part of the former Soviet Union was really, I think, intriguing to him. And uh, I grew up in a fairly rural context. So that didn't really daunt me. Although we were moving to the main city, like we weren't moving to the countryside. Um, but we, we emailed about the job. We heard back less than 24 hours later. And a week later, we were on the train to go to Ottawa to get our, our passports stamped with our visas. And then we were on our way. And so my 25th birthday was just me flying to Ulaanbaatar to, to start this job. And I don't really think that we appreciated that we, we were like, we were international teachers in Ulaanbaatar and we, we didn't really appreciate that we were actually serving some of the elite uh, children of, of the community. Um, and, and living in this old 
you know, cement Soviet block housing. The, the elevator was broken beyond belief. The button to push the elevator had a hole in it. And we didn't really appreciate that that was one of the highest end apartment buildings in, in the city. And so it was definitely a learning trip. Yeah, it was definitely an experience. It was, it was a foray into teaching, right? So I was learning about teaching. I was learning about children. I was learning that context and then I was learning the experience of being in a place where, where you're othered, but that othering is, is, is beneficial to you, I suppose. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and it's Mongolia. Like, it's Mongolia. It's it was trippy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no kidding. No I think one, kidding. Of my, one of my favorite parts about Ulaanbaatar is, is Mongolia is still, uh, at the time, I can't, you know, it's been 12 or 13 years, but at the time was still really nomadic. And so in the summertime, people take off to their countryside um, location. And then in the fall, winter, they converge back into Ulaanbaatar, which is a, a long like valley community. And, um, and you can literally like in September, October, November, we literally watch the city kind of grow up the sides of the hill as people kind of came in, set up their gear, set up their fences around their communities and herded their sheep into, uh, their new living space for the winter. And then in the spring, you watch it all dismantle and everybody disperses. And so the population goes from like maybe 500,000 to over a million in the span of a couple of months and then contracts. So it's really like, it's like a breathing, growing city oh, that was just fantastic. Yeah. Mercy. Yeah. Uh -huh. So yeah. what's the weather like? Oh, it was heinous. It was horrible. <laughs> I was so cold. I was just cold for, was just for six cold. months. It was just cold, like bitter, dry desert oh. cold. No snow to speak of. So worse than um, Ontario winter. Oh, my hands down, hands down. Like it was, oh. it, it was so funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. So this BC boy better stay away from Mongolia. I, I, I don't even like, I don't even like minus 10. Right? You're not going to fail. Go in the summertime. Cool. Every day in the summertime is like 20 and beautiful outside. Oh, wow. It's like the perfect, yeah. you know, go in the summertime, but sure. don't, don't go. In, don't go. That's in how they lure you there. Oh, the summers yeah. are great. Spring's pretty good. Fall's nice. Yeah. Summer's yeah, awesome. Come learn, learn how to ride a horse and, and go hawk hunting and, and do a gear hawk stay. Hunting. Yeah. But do not stay for the winter. Yeah. So that's hunting with a hawk, right? Yeah. Well, I couldn't do it, but I definitely watched somebody do it. Um, yeah. Hunting with a hawk. Is part of one of the, what were they, where were they hunting? Like a hawk's not very big. Uh, like small game and then um, like other birds, those kinds of things. So really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, okay. <laughs> Don't know what to do with that. That's uh, that's a, that's a first for me. Like, okay. Yeah. So Mongolia, Mongolia was a trip and then we, we landed off in, in Korea, in Busan, South Korea for a couple of years before coming back to Ontario, settling into Ontario and a uh, couple of years. Yeah. So, yeah, so this, this in, was not just an in and out thing. Like you're in Mongolia. How long were you in Mongolia for again? We only stayed in Mongolia for one year. Um, we were 24, 25 and, and, um, uh, we, we wanted to be 24 and 25. Sure. Right? 
Sure. So we went to we went to Korea and we were 24 or 20. We were Peter Pan for a couple of years. Okay. And then uh, yep, enough said. <laughs> yeah. So yep. spent about five years traveling internationally and then we came Oh, out. that's living the dream, Jess. That's yeah, awesome. It was good. That, yeah, we were happy doing it. Yeah. We got tired at a certain point and we were like, okay, now we're homesick. Let's yeah. go home. Yeah. Very good. Do you ever think you'd go back to doing something like that later on? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. What a great way to, what a great way to um, just experience the world and to try new things and to push your own boundaries um, and to just like dip your toes into, to other experiences. Um, and for me, you know, I, I footed, I put the whole bill for my university education. So for me, it was also a really smart way to alleviate some of that financial burden. For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. I imagine, imagine cutting your teeth educationally in a foreign country would have like exponential problems, not just, you know, problems. Cause I'm thinking like there's language barrier, there's a culture issue, there's food, right? Like, mm. And and it's not like you're going to another part of the world where your skin color is the same or your eye shape is the same. And so you can kind of blend in that way. Like you are, you are there and everybody knows that you're there. Right. Mm-hmm. How would, how was that? You know, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I learned a lot about um, how to be ready to, to adapt, how to, to, to kind of, Not, I mean, it's hard because I think that you learning to not try to carry your privilege with you or carry your assumptions with you is something that takes time. And um, I de- like I said, I definitely made mistakes. I definitely misinterpreted some, some context that, that I should have interpreted differently. But I think that over time, there was so much growth there and, and kind of being able to see my students for who they are and where they were coming from is, is one of the biggest takeaways that I had from those experiences, right? That, that we are all coming from a different set of assumptions and from a different set of experiences and, um, and finding those and understanding them is a very individualized process that you need to, there's no assumptions here. There's no, there's no room for stereotypes because you don't know, where that person is coming from. So I think that uh, um, it definitely helped me grow. And, and I loved each and every minute of, of those students kind of going through that with me. They were always very ready to have conversations with me about their culture and about um, what, how things worked for them and why they interacted the way they did and being ready to hear that and being ready to support it and, and listen to it, I think is the, the key thing that you can do as an educator is just who are you and where are you coming from? What do you need me to know about you? Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's so foundational, even doesn't matter what context you're in. Right. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's amazing. So I imagine that that, that experience was not only a great experience, but, it sounds like it was pretty foundational in how you developed as an educator. Yeah. Being willing to question myself and being willing to, to kind of grow myself, I think was a big part of that journey. Um, and I think that's where I sit now is always being willing to, although I have sort of, <laughs> I have 
my ideas about the world and how it works and pedagogy and education, but always being willing to, to question myself and to say, um, is, is what I'm holding on to here really valid? Is it true? And um, being willing to evolve and change as, as the world kind of evolves and change, changes around me without necessarily um, having to reinvent yourself or, or, or having to change or shift all the time. So really, who are you at your heart? Oh, wow. So. That's very cool. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you are in a master's degree or just finishing a master's? Oh, I'm smack dab in the middle of a master's degree. Yeah, smack dab in the middle of a master's degree and uh, smack dab in the middle of COVID. <laughs> I, had to take, I had to take a little break. I actually, when COVID hit, was wrapping up a course or two and it was uh, right as things were picking up in faculty development and and my course was wrapping up and I, I was just thinking to myself I was like I'm glad I've got this course like under my belt and almost done um, but that was really tenuous but yeah I'm taking a master's of ed at Ontario Tech University um, which is an interesting blend in Ontario. So in Ontario, we have a pretty strong divide between our college system and our university system. And Ontario Tech U is kind of a blend between the two. Um, so it's a technical university. And, uh, and the appeal that was there was really that I thought that uh, I could build my skills and my research and my knowledge in tandem. Uh, and in a lot of ways, I'm really getting that. Uh, what I love about the university is that they're making a, a strong movement towards a lot of open pedagogies, very experimental. Um, the, the mechanisms for learning really suit me. They do, they do the virtual face-to-face -face experience. Um, so probably like a lot of colleges or universities in BC might do, right? It's a a class every week where you're in a social environment, you're with a social group. I'm a talker. I love having other people to look at and talk to and interact with and share ideas with. Um, I don't think that I personally could do a fully online experience, but I also knew that given my family circumstance, you know, I have a young son and I have another kid on the way. I didn't think that I could, uh, I could do a face-to-face -face experience either. I needed to have no commute time <laughs> and the flexibility to kind of be in class or, or be doing things asynchronously if I needed to. Um, and so the program kind of, the program requirements kind of met that. Philosophically, they hit that need for open and exploratory and tech-enabled practice for me. Um, and, and I've been kind of, uh, just going through, I'm, I'm right in the middle of it. Like I said, so. Oh, wow. Well, wish you all the best in that. I mean, I, <laughs> I couldn't imagine what it would be like. I, I did a master's a little while ago at Royal Roads and, um. I hear oh, good goodness. things. Yeah, it was a good program. Really good yeah, program. Yeah. And, uh, I can't imagine having to do it in the middle of something like this, but, um. Wow. It's a, it's a really weird space to occupy too, right? It's like being a faculty developer but then also being a student at the same time. And then also having that layer of like being a parent or, or being a full-time employee period while doing, having like those three lenses, three or four lenses is a really interesting space to occupy. Um, now you're at, you're at Conestoga. Did I say that right? Yeah. I'm at Conestoga college. Conestoga college. Good. 
And so what, what kind of programs are there at Conestoga? Do you? Oh my gosh, we have such a range. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we're actually a huge college. Um, so well, our largest school is our school of business. Uh, we have a, a huge focus on trades and a diverse range of trades. Yeah, we do. We're ha we're having a new campus that's entirely dedicated towards the trades, but we cover like the gamut from culinary arts all the way to, to welding, you know, kind of a little bit of everything. And then we, yeah, it is fantastic. We also offer like degree programs. So we have like an engineering and, and technologies side of things. We have computer science, applied computer sciences. Honestly, we run the whole gamut. So how many students do you put through a year? Do you know? Um, I think our typical semesterly enrollment is somewhere in the vein of like 30 to 40,000. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? But that includes like part-time as okay, well that, and yeah, continuing PTS education, studies, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Like our full-time enrollment is not like that. But, okay. Um, yeah. It almost sounds like you're about the, you're probably a little bigger, but it sounds like you're the same as BCIT. That's my home institution. So. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I heard, I heard good things about BCIT and I actually met somebody at a conference a couple of years ago who was from BCIT. Well, yeah, they're a great place to work and uh, it's a good gig. That's for sure. Yeah. But um, Very nice. yeah, like everything else, it's uh, the COVID thing is, has mixed it all up for sure. And uh, the trades is they've just started going back. Well, I guess at the time of this recording and yeah, they would have been back probably four or five weeks by now and uh, in different capacities and different trades are, are coming in at different times. So I think the welding is just getting back now. And, yeah. Um, it's a tricky life right now to be in a trades profession and a trades educator looking at this remote environment and saying, but where is the hands-on practice? Because ultimately the reality that you're preparing learners for is a hands-on learning environment and a simulated or theoretical background is only going to take you so far before you need to develop the practical skills of this. Yeah, yeah I know it's true. And, and there are some trades that you just can't do in your backyard, right? Like aircraft mechanic and heavy duty mechanic and, and, some of these larger, more complicated trades, right? And uh, yeah, and it's so. not like you can just walk up to like the airport and be like, "Hey, I'm a student. I'd like to yeah. practice tinkering with some of your yeah, airplanes. exactly, exactly." And I'm not sure what it's like in <laughs> in Ontario, but you know, the air and the airplane industry here in BC is kind of well. Air Canada just laid off thirty thousand people, right? Not all yeah. in BC and Ontario, mind you, but you know, they're a big employer and they just laid off a whole whack of people. And so yeah. it's, um, you know, it's going to have an effect on apprenticeships. That's for sure. Yeah. So, our poor travel industry. That's oh, for sure. Well, there's a part of me that doesn't feel too bad, but there's a part of me that goes, okay, there's a lot of people that are, their jobs are suffering. So on that side of it, I'm like, yeah, that sucks. But on, on the, yeah. on the, on the consumer side of it. Yeah. <laughs> there's some good yeah. deals on flights right now. Well, you know, it's going to be a long time before you see me on a plane. That's for sure. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not too, I, I never was jazzed about going on a plane to begin with. I mean, I'm, I'm six, four and. Oh my gosh. So there is you know, no, you always go for the leg room seat. Don't you, you try I, to yeah. get that front row seats. Front row. Really check in. Yeah. Front row. I like, it's okay. My favorite seats are those seats right in front of the emergency doors. Yeah, where you can actually stretch those. out your legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever I walk down the aisle, the people's eyes are like, oh, no. 
right? Like, so thinking, <laughs> we okay, hope he did. Please no, Is please he going to no. sit next to me yeah, because his no, knees are no, going to be no. in, yeah, in yeah, my okay. dinner? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I, yeah. So I always try to take that, um, that seat by the, the exit door. That's for sure. Don't go to Asia. You do not want to sit down for that 16 or 12 hour flight. Oh yeah, my gosh. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm good. I don't need to go to Asia. Stay I want to go close to, to home. I want to go to England, but if I'm yeah. going there, I'm not just going for a week or two. Like I'm going for a month or more. Cause if I'm yeah, gonna well, you're basically going to have, <laughs> it'll be like or unfolding origami when they, exactly. when you get there it'll be like, exactly no no i'm wrinkled i need a couple yeah. of days to like press myself out and stretch exactly. by walking around the cliffs of moor or something yeah there you go in ireland yeah. yeah or i'd even pay the extra and get the get the business class because that then it would then it would be worth it right because that's right treat yourself exactly yeah. right yes. it's, it's, gonna be, it's gonna be more than two or three hours so I'm, I'm going to make the best of the best of it. Like I, I want towels. I want the food. I want to stretch out. I want the whole little deal, champagne. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Bring me everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But um, yeah, no, that's cool. Okay. So <laughs> enough about me. Let's get back to you. Um, so in your master's, what are you, what are you researching right now? Like what's your, what's your big research question? Um, so I'm still refining it, I think, but the vast majority of my questions and my, my looking into have been circulating around the ideas of, of open pedagogies and OER development. And so um, one of the areas that I started looking into is even how do we read you know, digital text? How do we interact and work with online content? And how does that shape or inform how you might develop an OER, how you might develop a digital textbook broadly. Because um, some of the work that I do relates to digital textbooks and some of it relates to OER. So whether it's publisher provided, you know, whether it's Wikipedia or whether it's, it's OER development, that's kind of the wheelhouse that I cover. Um, but I think personally and philosophically, I want to look into the ways that we develop OER because I want that to be a beautiful experience for learners. I think about my own experience as, uh, you know, a person coming from a very deeply entrenched rural blue collar background um, and entering into the higher education sphere unknowledgeable about this new class system and education system that I was walking into. No person in my family had ever been to higher education, period, before. Um, and I think about not just like the textbook cost, which was a huge factor for a person who was footing the bill entirely them themselves, but the textbook experience and how, how I read books and what I looked to from books and from texts and how different that experience was to go into a context where I was expo expected to consume books and interact with them in a way that was really not tactile, not engaging, not, you know, very functional. <clears throat> and so one of the things that I looked into is, well, you know, when we read digital content, what are we, are we, how do we read digital content? Um, you know, and, and how do we interact with digital content and how are we actually producing digital textbooks right now? And is how we produce digital textbooks in alignment with the, the experiences and the preferences that people have for online content. Um, and there's actually a really huge divide 
between how we read, uh, how we read a paperback book, and how we read digital content. And we're, we're not bridging that divide as we seek to transition from paper textbooks into digital textbooks. Um, because people largely don't really know that when you read online, you have a certain set of behaviors, and those certain set of behaviors largely dictate how you consume the information in front of you. That's really interesting because I, I too come from a, a severely, severely, it's probably the wrong word. I, I come from a, a very heavy blue collar background. Like, so my dad was a power line technician, worked for BC Hydro. I mean, we moved all over the country. We lived in Tuk Tuk, Tuk for crying out loud. So, um, my yeah, mom, so you're right there with me, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was just a kid, right? So I, I remember a little bit of it here and there, but I mean, we went, we were going to go to Libya and then Gaddafi took over and, and then my dad's like, well, let's not go there. Let's go up North. And why your dad's just like, let's go to Libya for a little well, while. <laughs> well, I think it was, I think it was an economic decision, like to go to Libya and I yeah. mean, the, money, the money's just outrageously good. Right. And probably still is anyway, long story short, we ended up going there. So it's interesting that you bring up that there's, there's this divide that people have between the printed word and the digital word, because like you, I'm the first one in my family to, to wade into higher ed um, and, and, and get a, an advanced degree. And, and I'm even looking at doing a PhD and all that other stuff. But um, yeah, like a paper book. I love it. It's, I, I can write in no. it. I, I can smell it. Like I can, it's can, tactile. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's just it's there, an experience, right? right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I got, a, I, and I got bookshelves right all over the place, but I got like 120 books on my Kindle. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's just, it's just so different. And I've got friends I, and I've always wondered if it's a, is it a generational thing? Is it a, is it an exposure thing? Like, what is you it? Ever, are you like me? And like, sometimes you'll have, you have like the, the Kindle version and you have the paperback version and you go to each of them for like different reasons. Guilty. I, I, I'm like, I don't know if I'm like bridging this cross generational <laughs> thing, or I think it's actually has to do a lot with like affective connection, right? The experience of reading for me was always like this, this, um, right. Like I think about my experiences of reading and as a kid, it was very escapist. It felt like leisure. I had a lot of positive emotional attachment to my experiences of reading. Um, and then I think about my experience of reading a textbook and it was so flat and unemotional and perfunctory and that affected my motivation for wanting to read that textbook. Sure. Sure. And yeah, yeah. Yes. I was a late bloomer when it comes to, when it came to reading, like, I mean, I was your typical kid, like comic books. Sure. Um, but you know, and, and I'm, I'm of the age that I, when I was going to school, even to high school, there was no internet. Right? So, so when <laughs> I came had, up into the internet too, okay, rural so, Northern Ontario. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, when I, when there was a project that needed to be done, like there, there was no Google, there, there was, there was no Wikipedia. I mean, there was an encyclopedia. Right. Yeah. So you, actually, you went to the library. It was probably really out of date. It's like well, the even then, yeah. encyclopedia from 1982. Yeah. Encyclopedia Britannica, <laughs> you know, um, and the National Geographic, those two became my friends. Um, and, you know, my parents, when I would often ask them, so how do I spell this? They go, go look it up. Right. And, in the dictionary. Uh, in the in the freakingly large dictionary that you could use to, you know. Where you support. sing A, B, C, D oh. as you flip through to get yeah, to your exactly. section. <laughs> and it's like eight inches thick and it could support the corner of a house if you needed it to. And, yeah, um, yeah. 
and, and fantastic I mean, bricks, those books. Oh, just amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And um, add but, some and, mortar and you're good. Exactly. So I was a late bloomer when it came, <laughs> when it came to reading, but I, I love reading. In fact, I'm on holidays right now and, I, and I'm, I'm not boasting, but I, I just, I've, I've been loving to sit down and just read. And, uh, and I'm not introverted. I'm a, I'm an extrovert's extrovert, but I love the book. I love going to bookstores. I love smelling old books. I, I love, I know. I love buying Maybe don't smell books. them anymore though, right? Like, well, like no, in I the do. days of COVID, do. please don't smell books. I know I do. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> like I'll go to Victoria and then there's a great bookstore in Victoria called Russell Books. And it's like three floors of old books. And, oh, uh, sounds and like heaven. Oh, you know, it is. And I got, I got four kids and, and three girls, one boy, and they all love books for different reasons. Right. But it's, but getting to that, that written word, digital word, it's, it's just different. Like yeah. it, it, I, you're right. Like I, I, and I've often wondered why that is like, why do I interact with digital differently than I interact with my, with my hard book or my, my written word? Yeah. And I think you have to look at your experiences, right? Like your experiences growing up with a physical book where are so numerous and varied and largely emotional. And then think about your experiences growing up into reading the digital. You were probably reading the digital for research purposes. You were probably learning to skim and scan and find the information that you need. We grew up in like, you remember when community or computer monitors are like deep and huge and oh, the screen yeah. was so bright. It just yeah. like pierced your eyes. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we take frequent breaks when we read a digital screen. Even if you're reading your smartphone or your Kindle, you look away a lot. You probably don't even notice yourself doing it, but we read in short bursts. We take eye breaks. Uh, we think of it as being a functional thing. And not only that, but a lot of our behaviors about reading digital stuff are informed by or served by social media. And think about how much you're like flicking and scrolling through your screen page, right? Like the card-based system that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter all employ. Um, you're flicking, you're skimming, you're scanning, you're reading a paragraph here, a, a sentence there. You're shopping around on the page. Look, you're not really doing a restful, relaxing, leisurely, positive reading experience. And so we just have this behavior set built up about digital reading. And the transitions that we have seen between, you know, taking a textbook and bringing it into a digital book, whatever, whatever format that takes, publisher provided or OER is often honestly literally about grabbing that 400 page intro to psych textbook and slapping it into a digital medium without really thinking about how the person at the other end of the line behaves with that book. And I wonder that if we kind of appreciated that people when they're reading a digital book are going to read it in short bursts, they're going to take eye breaks, they want something tactile to come out of it. And then they want some kind of an affective connection to the book. I wonder if we start to appreciate that, if we might like develop a digital book much differently than we have been. But we know the 400 pound textbook didn't work in paper format either. Nobody wanted to buy that intro to psych 400 page and $400 book. I didn't want to buy it. 
right? You didn't want to buy it. We didn't want to spend that much money on that book. But, but in the transition, the move to digital, there's all this research that says students hate digital textbooks. They hate them. And they, the research spans 20 plus years. It's not like this research is new. Students hate digital textbooks. They don't want to use them. The only positive motivator for students with using digital books is their convenience. Their convenience, right? Uh, and in 20 years, we haven't improved the reading experience much for students to get to a place of enjoyment with a digital textbook. We got to be able to take them there, right? We, we got I, it's possible to enjoy a digital, you've got a Kindle, it's loaded up with some books, you enjoy reading some of those books. Yeah, you know, and, and you make an interesting point with the emotional connection to reading, because like I, I read pretty widely, I don't read a lot of fiction, so I read a lot of nonfiction, but um, I, I, I'm a pretty broad reader, so uh, I have to think about that because you make a good point about the emotional connection to reading because yeah, I mean, there's, there's certain books. Let me, let me put it this way. There's certain books in print that I love reading more than others. Right. Uh, there's certain books in digital that I've appreciated and read through just like I've read a, a written word, but it's the same thing only it's in digital, but it, it's, it's almost reverse in the sense that, so I wonder, is it, is it topographical as well? Like if I, if I'm really into the topic, does that have a motive, an underlying motivation to, to read it regardless of its form? Cause I'm, I'm low, I'm layering my questions here, but as a tradesperson, we run into this too. So we, we run into our apprentices saying I'm one, I'm tired of paying, you know, hundreds of dollars for a textbook that we only use half of, which is, which is not uncommon, even in the academic side. Um, but they're now starting to say, I don't want to, I don't want to carry all this stuff with me. Like I'm, I just don't want to carry it. I, I'd rather have it digitally. And yet there's still, there's still apprentices that go, no, I like, I like the page. I want to highlight it. I want to make notes in it. Yeah. And, the, and that's still that, like that, that tactile experience that people want to get out of. They want, you want to have something to show. For your learning you want to have a physical representation especially people who are just really hands-on and really tactile they want to have something to show for what they've done but we need to we even especially now we need to think about um, access and what that looks like to information and and choice and so while there's always the choice to get the physical version of the book access more often is is facilitated by the digital version of the book but you're, you've landed on like a real key point, which is that there's a huge difference even in how we read fiction and nonfiction, right? When we read fiction, we probably have no trouble um, maybe engaging with it as a digital book because it's still affective for us. It's still connected. But the real trouble comes in when it's nonfiction. It's for learning purposes uh, and it's 400 pages long and, you know, the user experience of the app that you're reading from isn't that good or somebody hasn't really written it with tactile uh, thinking in mind. Um, 
So, so there's like a lot of layers that we have to think through when we're constructing or writing an OER or a digital textbook that, that people might not be engaging with, you know, um, even the way, so I think about OER development right now and, and OER development is sort of taking off in Ontario and it's something that makes my heart full of gladness and I'm, I'm very happy for it. Um, and, but sometimes a textbook when you're writing it is you want it to be linkful. You want it to take students to resources and external places. But what people actually really want from their reading experience is restfulness, right? Cognitively, we're already loaded up by reading through this book and learning this information. And when you make a page linkful, all of a sudden you've got tabs, 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 tabs running across the top of your browser. You feel guilty for not pursuing those further because each one means another, you know, thousand to two thousand words of reading and you're tired, your eyes are tired. Um, and then you feel guilty for closing those books, those tabs or, or for not being able to follow through in all those links. And so uh, that demotivates the learner and it, de it kind of like compresses their desire to read that book. And uh, one of the research studies that I was reading was talking about building in interactives into textbooks as well. And we've been experimenting in Ontario with H5P, which has been almost revolutionary for a textbook. Like I, I love it. We use it. Um, we use it in our faculty learning blog. I use it extensively uh, in companionship with a domain that I run in in my own learning. I don't. I don't really write papers. I build. I build websites and then kind of like add some interactives onto those. But how do you incorporate an interactive, which is wonderfully tactile for those people who need tactile learning. It's wonderfully reflective for those people who need some support in their metacognition through their reading experiences. But how do you build that into a digital textbook in a way that keeps that restfulness and, and the reading experience kind of intact for the learner? Well, you got to put it on another page. It has to be off by itself. It has to come at a natural kind of stopping point in the text content. And so like those little construction pieces, you know, that can lead us to making better quality OERs and better quality textbooks in whatever format they're making. But if we don't know to do them, if we aren't thinking about the user experience, the UX of, of the book that we're building for the person at the end of the line, then are we really giving them a reading experience that they're going to latch on to? And are they going to still prefer that physical textbook? Are they still going to want to have their shelves full of books? Some people like me probably still will. <laughs> I still want to have my books on my shelf. Yep. Uh, I still have highlighters and tabs and stuff like that. But like I said, I often have, you know, the paperback version and the digital version and I go to them for different reasons. I can't search through my physical book, but I can search really efficiently through my digital book. Yeah. And that's, and that's another good point, right? Like a friend of like, you probably know Chad Flynn. Um, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And um, he brings this point up quite a bit in the sense that, you know, our apprentices, our students, they're savvy with social media. In fact, they're, they're almost like super savvy. And yet when it comes to digital literacy, their digital literacy is really low and, and their ability to use like the internet, like for instance, Google, or even like, don't even go to Google scholar. Cause that's, you know, that, that's a whole other 
animal to wrestle down. Right. But how do, how do we, how do we make our books? How do we make our OER, uh, easier to navigate because, because we we're noticing this, this digital illiteracy or this, 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 this kind of fumbling through the digital world. How, how do we, how do we make that more accessible or more easier to navigate? I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the real challenge here is that there are so many digital book platforms, right? So one of the biggest, when I go through the research, when, and even just talking to students and hearing their input, we do like an annual student feedback survey. Um, and so I get to kind of have that student lens as in addition to looking into the resource. And then I think about myself as a learner too, and how I interact with my textbooks. But students often say, you know, um, I've got like five courses on the go or a couple of courses on the go and each one has a different book and each one of those books has a different like user experience like one's using Kindle and another one's using Textilium and another one's using Pressbooks and then we need to universalize that for students right like let's let's start there what is one central location where a student right like why does every textbook reader or ebook reader have a totally different UX, right? Let's learn a lesson from Microsoft, Google, and, and the other big companies that kind of got together 10, 12, 15 years ago and said, it's ridiculous that a save button in Microsoft looks different than a save button in Google and looks different than a save button in Apple. That's a ridiculous thing. Let's all agree on what a save button needs to look like. The save button is obsolete. It's a sync icon now. But um, let's all agree on, on flattening out that learning curve that people have with new software by just simply universalizing our icons. Well, let's start by like the big companies need to get together and universalize the reading experience, right? If it doesn't feel like turning a page, then like, are you doing it right to move to the next page? Like I've seen some ebook readers where you scroll to go down to the next page and it basically looks like a piece of paper and feels like a piece of paper. But when I have a book in my hand, I don't scroll down to turn the page, I flip the page. And so the Kindle app's got something right there, right? Where you swipe across the page to turn the page. But why is that different in every user experience? So I think universalizing if you're an organization, if you're a college or a school, you need to pick a platform and stick with it or pick an experience that you're giving to students and stick with it. Um, so if you're a program and, and you know, in your program you have this mix of publishers, textbooks and OERs, then, then as a community of practitioners, we need to get on the same page because those students are getting really different experiences of whatever it is in front of them. And then the next bit of that is doing a bit of that research to say, okay, well, you know, if we can boil it down, what's going to feel the most comfortable, you know, look at reading the book from the perspective of being a learner. Does it feel really comfortable to have to do a huge amount of scrolling to get to the bottom of your reading and then turn the page? Student people generally don't love scrolling a lot. Scrolling is really hard on your eyes. It makes you skim and scan. And then it feels like being on social media. 
Yeah, so a scroll or two, that's as long as your page should be. Linkfulness, right, reducing the quantity of links that you have going on, you know, getting the information kind of into the book um, and maybe linking in a, in a supplemental resources page or only when it's really purposeful, having embedded content kind of right there for students to, to watch or to learn from, and, and reconsidering even text as a medium. You know, um, a lot of learners don't consume text in the volume that, that you and I might consume text. They just simply didn't grow up reading volumes of writing. And so they look at that wall of text and they say, mm, maybe not this page. There's some good research that says, you know, about a thousand to two thousand words is where our stamina really peters out in a digital book. And that's if we have a reader who has the stamina to read that much text. If you have a really tactile, hands-on learner, is there, is there stamina level at the thousand word or two thousand word level per page? Probably not, right? So even the content that we're presenting in the digital book, does it need to be text? Hmm. Man, there's know. so much there. There's so much. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to, that's why it's a hard conversation to have with people because it makes us rethink how, what we think of as being a textbook. Yeah, no, exactly. And especially now in this day and age where there's, there's a, I mean, I, I, I'm on secondment to BC campus and we love OER too. Like we just, it's, 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 and I, and I'm a big advocate of it I, and making online textbooks or online resources or, and not just online, but different different formats into it. So PDF and EPUB and, but I never thought about, I never thought about the different platforms that are being offered. Like I, it's probably still the case, but as you're saying, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking, is it, are we creating a paralysis of, of choice because there's just so many different formats for people to download it in? Or I wonder if there's one or two that are the most common and I wonder why they're the most common. Is it just because we're so used to them and we don't know the other ones? Like PDF, like everybody knows a PDF. Oh, I'll just oh, download the PDF, yeah, right? The whole world is down with PDFs. Can we get away from them? <laughs> well, sure. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. They're um, the worst. Yeah, right? But um, it's like, it's like I, I got a Kindle, but you know, I, don't, I don't do any technical reading on my Kindle, right? I'll, I'll do technical reading online. So if I'm looking at a piece of equipment or, or investigating... Um, uh, material or something like that. I'll, I'll go online and look at it through Google, but, and, but <laughs> and I'm just yeah. gonna say, and, and then I'll download the PDF manual, but, um, yeah. <laughs> you might, but, but you it, know, it's probably the most universal format is really web format, right? Like, um, it takes little to no data to access. It takes little, no storage to keep you know, we just need better mechanisms for storing, sharing, remembering the things that we're reading. Um, and one of the things that we have locally that I've, I've really always loved is that one of our local universities will print you any OER for a flat fee of 20 bucks. So, and they'll mail it to you. That's what's like, they will get it to you. So like, I think honestly, streamlining things into having sort of a universal 
access mechanism. We've been using Pressbooks in Ontario, and I really like the UX on Pressbooks. It's a really beautiful reading experience, very intuitive, very straightforward, and it companions well with things like Hypothesis to let you highlight and annotate on it. It'll let you kind of pull it down into your Kindle reader if you want to use it that way. Um, Not to mention so, H5P technology now that you can you can do all over best press books, right? Oh my gosh. For those tactile learners, I really think that H5P is key because you're doing something. You have something to show for your work. Um, even if it's just a screenshot of your results page um, and you can do it all from mobile, right? I think too, we are so planful of students having a laptop in front of them. And yet we know that 90% of students have a, have a smartphone and we're not planning first with that in mind. Oh yeah. And you're right. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on, whether it's academically or vocationally. There's just a lot of students don't have a laptop. They just don't. They've got a phone. And in some cases, the phone is just as powerful as a laptop in some cases, right? So oh my why, gosh, why, yes. would, why would they have a laptop? It just doesn't make sense to them. Yeah. Um, but wow, um, this is really good. We are creeping up on our time. Amazingly, yeah. it's, it's gone by so fast. Uh, I wonder we spent if the whole time just talking about books. <laughs> that's good. It's all good. Um, I wonder if we could uh, invite you back and at, at, at another episode in the future, um, maybe give us some time to have some holidays over the summer, but uh, in the fall, maybe we can invite you back. And I, I know Chad would love the opportunity to chat with you. Um, yeah. I'd love to pick can, both of your brains too well, on trades-based education, right? It's something we're, we're figuring out over here. For sure. For sure. And then Sally Vinden is on the team now too. Um, and she is, uh, she just finished her PhD in curriculum and development. And uh, so, I mean, there'll be a lot for, for you two to talk about too. So if you don't mind, we'd love to have you back in the fall, if that, that would be good. That would and be fantastic. Have a conversation party. That'd be awesome. That'd be really good. So again, thanks for taking the time, Jess. It's been, it's been wonderful to, to chat with you and, um, yeah, we, we've only scratched the surface on our list of guiding questions, but that's the way it goes sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we can't tackle everything all in one session, but I'd love to come back and talk with you all. And I love just kind of furthering the conversation about how can we develop what we are a little bit better? How can we make that experience sort of what, what the person at the end of the line is really looking for from it. So um, any way that we can kind of make that happen, I'm always down to talk over those ideas and maybe talk a little bit more about travel stories and, oh, yeah. and lessons learned and the origami <laughs> of sitting in airplane chairs. <laughs> nasty. It's nasty for this guy. But uh, anyway, uh, good. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Tim. So great to talk to you.
I'll flow 